0: Hello, I'm Dango Rose and you're listening to the Mountaineer podcast in conjunction with the Mountaineer newspaper, the voice of the peak to peak, online and in print, brought to you by Mountain Vale Media. Now, listen in for the show. This is the Mountain Ear Podcast, and I'm Marianne Rosen, bringing you stories, history, or lore, from or about the mountains you live in. Tales of Westwood Expansion Abound But in honor of Black History Month, this one is about the Black Migration West, after the Civil War and beyond, including some history right here in the Peak to Peak. The Song of the West, the Lore of New Frontiers. It was not only a clarion call for the white population, but for several reasons the black population also heeded the siren. The story begins with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the initial document freeing African-American slaves in rebel states. It continues with the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. This revision to the Constitution emancipated all blacks in all states, current and future. It abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. A year later, the 14th Amendment was enacted. This alteration affirmed that no state could make or enforce a law that curtailed the privileges of any citizen because of race or color. It called for equal protection under the law and due process. 1869 found the ratification of the 15th Amendment, which declared that a state could not diminish the right to vote based on race, color, or previous conditions of servitude. While all of this was happening, the Civil War raged on for a couple more years, including the service in the war by African-American troops, and finally the defeat of the Confederacy, followed by the Reconstruction Era. This was also a time in which it took a while to free all of the slaves, and for slaves to all realize that they had indeed been freed a time in which southern blacks were faced with the same dilemma as northern ones, that of a free people surrounded by hostile whites. Many blacks were left unsure of what it meant to be freed. Whites did not know how to have free blacks living among them. The nation was unprepared to deal with full citizenship for these freed slaves. Reconstruction was aimed at reorganizing the southern states and readmitting them to the Union along with finding a way and means of having whites and blacks living together side by side in society. Teachers, schools, churches, and missionaries were all called upon to attempt to facilitate this process, as well as to provide education to the free slaves who had been denied that privilege previously. The South found all of this humiliating and did not welcome it. However, after the Civil War, Amendments 13 through 15, and a Civil Rights Act in 1866, blacks enjoyed a period in which they were allowed to vote, participate in the political process, acquire land, seek employment, and use public accommodations. Opponents of this process, however, soon rallied against the slaves' newly gained freedoms and began to find ways to erode them. Some slaves stayed in the South and became wage laborers for former owners, while others quickly fled for the North. Many, however, went West. The movement of African Americans from the South to the North and West happened in two large waves, the Exodus of 1879 and then again around 1910 with the Great Migration There were a few factors leading to this large migration of previously enslaved peoples and all-Black people, one of which was definitely the erosions of freedoms. Other factors, in addition, obviously, to discrimination and lynchings, were a lack of education and economic opportunities. Having a better chance to find work, especially during World War I, played heavily into the reasons for migrating Unfortunately, the West was not free from discrimination and other problems. However, for the moment, Blacks met less of the institutionalized racism that was seen elsewhere. African Americans fled to Kansas, Oklahoma, and Colorado. Colorado was seen as a place with a little less bigotry. Blacks did not form a large enough group, so were not, for the time being, regarded as a threat. Colorado also had a large population of foreign-born immigrants, many of whom came from places which did not share the same fears and racial prejudices that American-born residents had. Colorado provided many jobs in the mining industry, and schools, at that time, were open to everyone. African Americans became miners, farmers, store owners, teachers, and doctors. African Americans could also easily own land in the state. The black population under the Homestead Act and the Expanded Homestead Act of 1909 were eligible for the same land ownership as the white population. In fact, the black population in Colorado grew from 456 in 1870 to 10,476 by 1930, African Americans used this land ownership to create all black townships where they could live in peace and escape some of the racial discrimination and violence. Many people do not realize that Colorado had quite a few all black towns. Many African Americans settled in the Denver, Pueblo, and Colorado Springs area, along with many smaller towns. Here are just a few. In 1888, near Grand Junction, Samuel, Clark, and John Hines, three brothers, purchased 10 acres of land and established the first fruit orchard owned and operated by African Americans. Perhaps the largest and most well-known of all of the black communities was that of Deerfield. Northeast of Denver in Weld County, it is the only historical all-black town that still has many intact buildings. Deerfield was established in 1910 by Oliver Toussaint Jackson, a successful Black entrepreneur. He was inspired by Booker T. Washington's biography, Up From Slavery, to build towns where Blacks could have independence to farm their own land and stay clear of some discrimination. Jackson purchased a 320-acre plot of land for Black settlers The first pioneers of Deerfield were poor and lived in tents, dugouts, and caves, but by 1915, even with a lack of easy access to water, they managed to grow corn, oats, barley, alfalfa, hay, and potatoes. They also raised livestock—cattle, pigs, horses, and poultry. The town of Deerfield promoted itself in pamphlets, magazines, and newspapers. During World War I, the town focused on sending food to the troops and military. Stores and hotels opened and attracted black homesteaders from around the country. At its peak, there were 700 people living there. Unfortunately, between the problems brought on by the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, after only 20 years, the population decreased as residents left for better opportunities in other western towns and Denver. A few deserted buildings remain, and in 1995, the town was listed on the National Register of Historical Places. Currently, the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center is trying to preserve more of Deerfield. When the Black population headed to Denver, the Black settlers were scattered but after the affluent whites in denver left certain areas and moved to neighborhoods such as capitol hill homes and buildings in other locations like five points became available and were purchased by african americans the neighborhood encompassed the intersections of east 26th ave and welton street and 27th and washington it was named five points after the streetcar stop <coughs> With a large influx of Blacks, it became known as the Harlem of the West. Welton Street filled with Black-owned physician offices, diners, grocery stores, clothing stores, bars, music venues, and other successful businesses. And by the 1920s, 90% of the Black population of Denver lived in this area. Of course, redlining, discrimination, and strict neighborhood rules made it difficult for them to live elsewhere. Another African-American town that came to be known as The Dry was located in southern Colorado, eight miles south of Manzanola. It was established in the early 1920s by Josephine and Lenora Rucker sisters, and strong women who wished to create a close-knit community to maintain a legacy of freedom, family, and resilience. It was their dream to irrigate the land and create a farming community, even against the odds of the harsh realities of life in Colorado's Southeast Plains. They encouraged other families to come to this area in the middle of nowhere and with few natural resources, to find a better life and a good place to raise families. At its height, 50 black families lived there, farming, mostly melons. The community dug deep water wells and a man-made lake for water collection. They had a school, though no stores or businesses. Most lived in dugouts. They faced the difficulties of living there with imagination and fortitude. No longer in existence, the last person having left in 1983. Our own peak-to-peak area also had its own history connected to this migration. Although Colorado's African Americans at the time avoided some of the most severe abuses of Jim Crow and segregation, they still experienced a lot of overt discrimination. Blacks faced limited housing, employment, and recreational opportunities. They also lived under state and local governments, often controlled by the Ku Klux Klan. Still, Colorado's African Americans managed to flourish, building a strong sense of community with thriving businesses. The Black community, however, during this time was still not allowed entrance to places frequented by whites. Neighborhoods, clubs, pools, restaurants, hotels, music venues, and other settings. This opened the door for the creation of a site like Lincoln Hills, a little-known but historically important mountain oasis where blacks could relax and enjoy the Rocky Mountains' natural beauty without facing the discrimination and segregation that permeated American life. Located in Gilpin County, between Pinecliffe and Rollinsville, Lincoln Hills offered African-Americans the opportunity to become landowners and participate in outdoor recreation and leisure typically denied to them. Lincoln Hills was a place where black people who had discretionary funds could also go on vacation, a place of refuge and shelter where they could freely go and enjoy mountain life with family and friends. Although Lincoln Hills property owners came from all over, it remained mostly a colony of black people from Denver. The larger resort area of Lincoln Hills was developed by a group led by Robert E. Ewalt and E.C. Regnier, working in partnership with the Sayre Ranching Family of Gilpin County, who owned the land. Lincoln Hills was subdivided into 594 lots and promoted to African Americans as a community, and I quote from the pamphlet, within the grandeur of the everlasting hills, bathed in perpetual sunshine and fragrant with the odors of wild flowers and the health giving pine forests that will attract thousands. African Americans could become Lincoln Hill landowners for as little as $50, with a $5 down payment and a monthly payment of $5. Also located at Lincoln Hills was Camp Nizoni, Colorado's first dedicated camp for African-American girls. It was established by the Phyllis Wheatley branch of the YMCA as the Denver facility was segregated, as was the girls' camp at Lookout Mountain, and other locations that the camp had tried to rent faced white hostility. The social hub of Lincoln Hills was Wink's Lodge, the vision of Opry Wendell Hamlet, nicknamed Winks. The lodge offered food and social events, often with Winks socializing right alongside the guests. The lodge, with its rooms for rent, was a destination unto itself for Black travelers. Visitors reached the resort by car or train. The Denver and Salt Lake Railroad passed through the Moffat Tunnel from both Boulder and Denver, stopping at Pinecliff and again just down the hill from the resort. If one were staying at Winks Lodge, it was not uncommon for Winks to personally pick up visitors at the train station and bring them to the lodge himself. An interesting fact about Winks Lodge and the resort was that literary artists and musicians performing in Denver would stay there. According to oral tradition, guests included Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Lena Horne. Wink's Lodge was likened to the literary salons during the Harlem Renaissance, except nestled in the mountains with a view of Indian peaks. Visitors declined after the Civil Rights Movement. Camp Nizoni closed when segregation ended. Wink's Hamlet bought one of the camp buildings and turned it into Wink's Tavern, a hundred yards down the road from the lodge. After Wink's Hamlet's death in 1965, interest in Lincoln Hills died as well, though a few African-American families kept their cabins. A lot of the other structures fell into disrepair and were razed. A series of owners worked to preserve Wink's Lodge, and in 1980, Wink's Panorama Lodge was listed in the National Registry of Historic Places. The lodge survives as a symbol of this enclave of African-American culture. It stands as a reminder of the segregation era and the vibrant and resilient Colorado black community. Until the next tale from the mountains. Listen in next time to the Mountain Ear podcast for another mountain tale. I'm Marianne Rosen. Thank you for listening. That's it for our show. Subscribe online to get access to more news, weekly updates to our community calendar, and a link to our YouTube channel by visiting themountaineer.com. Be sure to use the coupon code PODCAST when subscribing for a 10% discount. Only available to our listeners. I'm Dango Rose. Thank you for listening.